Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 28 for the final quarter of March 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is a continuation of the Planet X series, this time looking into Gilbert Erickson's take on the phenomenon, which he terms Wormwood. The brief background on Gilbert Erickson is that he's big on biblical prophecy. Given the name he uses for Planet X as Wormwood, you probably could have guessed that. Many of the sections of his website are direct references to the Book of Revelation in the Christian Bible, with headings such as Sixth Seal Event List, or Pre-Rapture Events, or The Antichrist, or Mark of the Beast. I will not be addressing his links to the Bible in this episode, as that's for someone else to do, and it's really not my area of expertise, nor do we actually need to go into it to critically analyze his claims about Planet X. They should be able to stand up on their own. Rather, this episode is going to focus on the astronomy, geology, and physics that he brings to the stage that is Planet X and 2012. If, for some reason, you're more interested in his work, you can visit his website, The Millennium Prophecy, which I'll link up to in the show notes. I also want to say before I get into the real meat of this episode that Erickson was interviewed on Coast to Coast AM on June 29th, 2009. That's the source for a lot of the quotes in this episode, but I'm not going to use the original audio clips. The reason is that there's a lot of extra stuff thrown in, and the clips as I originally wrote them down had a lot of ellipses to really get to the crux of what he was saying. So, in the interest of time, continuity, and my own sanity, I'm just going to be reading them. With that said, Erickson makes many specific claims about Planet X. First off, in its orbit, he claims, The solstice line is the line that Wormwood comes in on, arcs up over the sun, and goes back out on. It follows the solstice line produced. Its transit time is about 1,800 years outbound, so it's a round trip of 3,600 years. Another area of interest for any astronomical body is going to be its mass, which Erickson says is about 60 times Jupiter's mass. It is about 1-17th of a solar mass, solar mass being the mass of the sun. In terms of its diameter... Erickson says, From the best that we can tell, military sources, they think that it's the size of Saturn, possibly as large as Jupiter. As to the composition of this giant object, he says, Instead of being a gas, it's an iron oxide rust ball, just a big giant iron ball, and it's really heavy. Unfortunately for Erickson, this conflicts with what kind of object he claims it is, which he claims... Wormwood is a brown dwarf star. It is the sun's binary companion. So let's, in our analysis, forego the very basic fact that if an object the size of Saturn or Jupiter were within the orbit of Jupiter, that everybody on Earth would know about it. I've addressed this in detail in episode 23 and its associated puzzler. Now, to be fair, he does claim that an amateur astronomer, quote, can probably find it, it being Wormwood, now. And it will be visible to any Southern Hemisphere observer. Of course, none have found it, which to any honest researcher, even back in 2009, and especially now, even though he's still updating his website, would be a big clue. 
that they should re-examine their basic hypothesis. Let's also forego the idea that an object with a 3,600-year orbit in our solar system can't work either, as I've already addressed that claim in episode 23, The Fake Story of Planet X, Part 1, The Claim to Zechariah Sitchin. Instead, let's look at the description of the object that Erickson brings to bear. He says that it's a brown dwarf star, but also an object made of solid iron, and he also gives you the size and the mass of the object. So let's get the, unfortunately, the math over with first. The density of pure water at room temperature at sea level on Earth is one gram per cubic centimeter. This is actually by definition. This is how you define a gram and a centimeter. The density of Jupiter is 1.33 times this. So if you found a bathtub big enough, Jupiter would sink in a bathtub of water. The density of Saturn is 0.69. So Saturn, in a giant bathtub, would actually float. Earth's bulk average density is 5.52 grams per cubic centimeter. So it's about 5.5 times heavier than water on average. Erickson claims that his object is 60 times the mass of Jupiter, but that its volume is somewhere between Saturn's and Jupiter's. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt in this calculation and say that it's the volume of Jupiter, so it's bigger. That would mean that the density of Erickson's object is 60 times 1.33, which equals 80. That's right. Erickson says that the density of planet X is about 80 times the density of water, and yet the density of iron is only 7.85 times the density of water. For comparison, the average density of the sun is 1.4 times water. Though to be fair, the core of the sun is about 150 to 160 times that of water, depending upon which model you trust. But still, having such a high average density is an untenable situation for an object with the features that he claims. Besides the basic parameters of this object, this wormwood or planet X, part of the crux of Erickson's argument is that this wormwood has an active surface geology. Quote, It's probably volcanic. It throws massive amounts of iron oxide rust out, which are distributed through the inner node rings. Unquote. And then we get to the real pseudoscience, as opposed to the fake pseudoscience, or the pseudoscience stuff that I stated before. He states, and this is a rather long quote, but it has a lot of ellipses, which is why I'm not bringing in the original audio clip. If you're actually interested, you can find the Coast to Coast AM episode from that day. It's an hour two, starting about 16 minutes into the episode. Quote, What causes the grief is this thing will spin, too. This object has a very powerful baryonic field. You know, it has a lot of mass. And you spin it. It develops a node ring, or distortion field, like a series of concentric hula hoops. These concentric hula hoops are then reflected back from the dark matter, dark energy of space. The dark soup, you know. And what you end up with are these concentric rings. Where those rings are around the sun, that's where the planets orbit. Where the rings are around the Earth, that's where the moons are. The same thing for Jupiter and Saturn. If you take a planet like Saturn and really rev it up fast, then the thing will not only generate node rings for moons, but rings for ice and junk and all sorts of stuff. 
and the Cassini spacecraft got some excellent pictures. Each one of the rings that are spinning at a different speed with the fastest ones on the inside and the slowest ones on the outside. So spinning bodies generate these gravitational distortions. And that's where the asteroids in the space junk orbits Wormwood. End quote. Now, when I was just reading that, I think I only recognized two things. Only two things that were statements of fact. One of them is that Saturn does have rings. The other one is that the rings closer to the planet do orbit the planet faster than the rings farther out. That's basic Kepler's laws. We've been through Kepler's laws several times in this podcast, including, for example, episode one. That's really about it. One thing that I did notice is that he claimed that Earth has multiple moons. Again, quote, Where the rings are around the Earth, that's where the moons are. So, let's attempt to really dissect what Erickson is claiming in that long quote in terms of the statements of not fact, false facts, or whatever you want to call them. He's basically saying, one, objects that have mass and that spin will generate concentric nodal gravitational rings. Two, it's on the sun's rings that the planets orbit, and the planets' rings that moons orbit, etc., etc., etc. Three, these rings are also duplicated and are made more complicated via reflections off of dark matter and dark energy. Four, it's on these rings that space junk orbits and will cause destruction on Earth. So let's address the foundational claim that of the very existence of these concentric nodal distortion ring thingies. Now, I took 14 physics classes in my undergraduate career, and I took 10 astronomy classes. I also took 30 credit hours of graduate classes in astronomy and geophysics. I don't happen to remember any mention of such a thing as gravitational nodal rings. But, just in case I was incorrect, I looked through about 10 textbooks that I had, and I didn't find anything. So then, on a whim, I did a quick Google search, just to see if my memory was failing at my ripe young age of 20-ish something-ish. A Google search of gravitational nodal rings turns up only references to 2012, Planet X, Wormwood, and similar things. Now, I don't mean to dismiss this out of hand on that evidence, but I suppose it's possible that such a thing exists. Perhaps they were thinking of gravitational waves that are thrown off by very massive objects like colliding neutron stars or spinning black holes. But the fact that the only people who are talking about concentric gravitational nodal rings on the whole of the internet are planet Xers and doomsday people, well, that should tell you something. So then why, number two, do planets and moons orbit where they do? Well, it's because that's where they happen to have formed or evolved into a resonance with another object. For example, three of the four main moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, and Ganymede, orbit in a 4-2-1 resonance, which means that for one full orbit of Ganymede around Jupiter, Europa orbits twice, and Io orbits exactly four times. The system probably didn't form that way. In fact, there's good evidence that Ganymede didn't make it into that resonance until about 1-2 to two billion years ago, but that has nothing to do with gravitational nodes, or rings, or really this episode. As for point 3, Erickson is throwing out scientific-sounding terms when he has absolutely no idea what he's talking about, or if he does, then he's just outright lying. 
since I can't go to the operation of his mind, I'll just assume that he's ignorant and does not know what he's talking about. Dark energy has absolutely nothing to do with the expansion of the universe, and it's not something tangible that something can reflect off of. Dark matter is non-baryonic material, as in you are made up of baryonic material. Everything that we know about stars, Earth, your car, or your parents' car, someone else's car, whatever, is made up of baryonic matter, and it's non-baryonic matter that, as far as we can tell, only interacts through gravity, and so we can't see it, that is not baryonic. And so it's dark matter. It's just a placeholder name. So, again, this is not really some mystical, gravitational thing that node rings can bounce off of. Since I think I've effectively explained why points 1 through 3 are fairly ridiculous, I don't think I need to go into the fourth point of his argument, that is, the one that says that there's space junk on the nodal rings of Wormwood that are going to cause havoc on Earth in 2012, you know, in about seven months or so. Moving forward in the interview and in his claims, like any good doomsday-sayer, Gilbert Erickson, of course, makes specific claims about how his pet idea is going to destroy Earth. He has about six specific claims that he makes during the second hour of the radio show, if you're really interested, it starts at about 18 minutes into the episode. The first is taken from the radio show, while points 2 through 6 are from his website in an attempt to stay coherent. Quote, Number 1. A Great Earthquake. This is where the node rings of Wormwood take a hold of Earth and just start shaking the living liver out of it. I think the first earthquake was the December 25th, 26th, 2004 tsunami and that grabbed a hold of the plates down there. 2. We get volcanic activity at tectonic plate edges, rims of fire that eject high tonnages of ash plume into the upper atmosphere that block out the sunlight over large areas of the Earth. 3. Wormwood throws large tonnages of iron oxide dust and debris between the Earth and the Moon or into Earth's atmosphere. When we look through the veil of iron oxide rust, the moon takes on a blood-red color. 4. Wormwood throws asteroids and various forms of space junk into Earth's atmosphere that impact on the surface as meteorites. Expect some severe tsunami events if there are impact pieces landing in the ocean that are of a significant size. 5. At least one of the volcanic eruptions will be a large pyroclastic explosion, a volcanic cone that will, quote, blow its top, like Mount St. Helens did in May 1980. The blast concussion feels like the sky is splitting apart anywhere within sound range of the cone. The curling action of the mushroom cloud when viewed from below looks like a scroll when it is allowed to spring back into the rolled-up position. 6. Tectonic shifting from the Wormwood Node Ring Earthquake will shift the mountains and islands into different places. Displacements may be measured by tens or hundreds of feet of difference, but when the shifts will be measurable with modern surveying equipment. Again, with major earthquake activity and island movement, expect severe tsunami events to follow for various coastal cities. Now, for good measure, at 29 minutes into the program, he also states, quote, 
It can reach right through the Earth and pull a continent down under the waves on one side of the Earth and pull a continent up out of the waves on the other side of the Earth and do it in 20 minutes. Does Atlantis ring a bell? What about Lemuria? There's a very good chance you'll see Atlantis rising in 2012. That's Wormwood talking. Are we actually going to see this death, mayhem, and destruction? In a word, no. And yes, that might sound dismissive, but at this point in the episode, I think that I'm allowed to be a bit dismissive. First, number one, two, four, and five are very, very general claims. Earthquakes happen, space junk falls to Earth, and we see meteorites landing on a daily basis. And volcanoes blow their tops. It just kinda happens. Number three won't happen, because in the previous section, I talked about this whole entire mechanism, and how it's fallacious, these gravitational node rings, which is also why number six won't happen. As for Atlantis, well, this is an astronomy, physics, and sort of geology podcast. Atlantis is fiction. I'll link to an episode of the SGU 5x5 in the show notes that will discuss the whole Atlantis thing. I don't think I really need to go into too much research on the subject, because others have in much more detail than I care to. In the end, Gilbert Erickson is another doomsday proponent with a biblical twist that has a book to sell for $16.95. He has people to scare, but he has nothing to back him up except a lot of misunderstood terms at best and outright deceit at worst. He has no training in relevant physics, astronomy, nor geology fields, but rather he is a, quote, psychologist, linguist, and former helicopter pilot during the Vietnam War. What's strange about him is that he makes specific predictions that are demonstrably false, some now, such as the visibility of this object, and some in the very near future to when the Coast to Coast episode aired, but which didn't actually happen, claiming, for example, that, quote, in May, June, July of 2012, it's going to get close enough to exchange atmospheric gases with the Earth. Sorry, it didn't happen. Q&A and the Puzzler, or Fact or Fake, will return in the next Odd Quarter episode, although I am considering adding at least the Fact or Fake every episode. If you have any particularly strong feelings either way on that, please let me know via any of the feedback mechanisms possible, such as sending an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback related to last week's topic on stellar scams, I actually did hear from a lawyer who goes by the pseudonym Nigel St. Whitehall, with input from his wife, Lady St. Whitehall. Nigel runs the Skeptical Review blog, and has written favorably about my blog, interviews, and podcasts in the past, so I won't hold against him that he believes Hershey's chocolate isn't utter crap. Anyway, his email was in part, I do not practice air and space law, but I did take a class in it way back 1996-97 in law school. You are correct. Because governments cannot lay claim to territory on, say, Mars, there is no way to have ownership without some governmental entity to recognize and enforce the claim. Unless the UN could be convinced to recognize the claim, it's nonsense. And I ran this past my wife, who is the smart attorney in the household. She agrees with me. 
She thinks this is akin to space piracy. Obviously, this is my semi-educated opinion. I also think it's a near no-brainer. On a side note, I approve of your disclaimers. For the life of me, I cannot fathom why other podcasts do not do this more often. So Nigel said that also if I'm ever in Hershey, Pennsylvania, on some trip to look him up, and he'd buy me dinner if I gave him a, quote, name drop on my podcast. But, as I already told James from Ireland in episode 24, I don't do shoutouts. Anyway, the bottom line appears to be that I was right. Individuals cannot own property off-Earth because governments can't own it, and it's through the government that you're granted any rights to property. In terms of announcements, there aren't any for this episode, except for my apologies for a belated by two days episode. And with that said... That wraps up this topic for the 28th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or funny fourth thing. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends and family. I also suppose if you don't like this podcast, I'm not quite sure why you're still listening, but you can also feel free to write a review on iTunes. 